I'm Samantha Engel. And I'm Aaron Gullius, and this is Great Lakes Lore. Hello, Samantha. That was very formal. Hello, Aaron. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. How are you? I am fine. I uh, am back from from a, a trip to the Appalachians, the, the northern foothills-ish Appalachians, the Ohio Appalachians, which was uh, which was a, a nice, nice trip. I've got a short story for the midway break that doesn't quite match your haunted reformatory, but uh, it's a haunted something. It's been a good couple of weeks. How about you? I'm alive. Nice. Excellent. <laughs> well done. Well done. Sometimes. That's, that's what I've got to say. I think we've all had those periods of time where. That's the achievement. You're still there. Still standing. <laughs> All right. Well, tonight we are going to talk about the Michigan relics. Aaron, had you ever heard of this before I told you about it? I had not. I had heard of similar things in other mm-hmm. places, but I had not heard of the Michigan relics, which is crazy because once we got into this story, I was like, how have I not heard about this? This is amazing. <laughs> well, to be fair, I did not remember that I vaguely knew this story until my friend Heather, who um, I went on the ghost hunt with, told me, hey, you should do this for an episode. And for some reason, it stuck with me. And I was like, hey, Aaron, this should be our next episode. It was one of the (laughs) stories that we shared (laughs) while we were driving to Ohio for our ghost hunt. So um, yeah, I had forgotten that I knew it. And I definitely didn't know this much about it at all. Not at all. <laughs> so, um, so I'm glad we were able to dig into it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting story, and it touches on a lot of wider historical issues that that come up in our professional lives in one way or another. You in the museum world, and and me um, talking to students who think they know things that they might not know, or have watched the wrong YouTube videos about history. Yeah, um, I get to talk about museum stuff at the end, and I'm very excited about that. <laughs> we get to talk about NAGPRA. You'll learn what that is at the end of the episode. I just finger gunned the the finger guns for NAGPRA. I get very passionate about NAGPRA. NAGPRA. And, and uh, you texted me, we can talk about NAGPRA. And I'm like, absolutely. I'm like, I got to Google it. I got to Google that. <laughs> I, and I, I, I did know exactly what it was, but like I told you, not in acronym form. I, <laughs> I, Once you looked it up, you were like, oh, yeah, I know what this is. In museums, you just say NAGPRA. <laughs> like there will be job postings for museums for NAGPRA specialist. I'm going to stop saying NAGPRA for a while now. So, all right. Well, we are going to start off um, talking about three different sort of background ideas or themes that are going to be important to keep in mind as we go through the story. We figured it would be easier to get these ideas out at the beginning as opposed to interrupting the narrative and confusing everybody as to where, confusing ourselves as to where we are in the narrative by the time we get back. So first, we're going to talk a bit about some Native American history, and we're going to talk about the mound builders. Um, The Hopewell and the Adena Native American tribes are both known as mound builders because they built thousands of mounds (laughs) throughout the Mississippi River Valley and into surrounding areas, into kind of the Midwest Great Lakes region. There are mounds all over the place. For this discussion, we're going to focus largely on the Hopewell. And the Hopewell were believed to be in Ohio as early as 100 BC. They were named after Mordecai Hopewell, who discovered mounds on his property near Chillicothe in early in the early 1800s. The Hopewell had an extensive trading network, and we know this because of the um, the materials that these items found in the mounds were made from. There was copper from northern Michigan. There was mica from the Carolinas, and there were all of these materials that are found. I mean, even all the way out to Colorado. And they were using these things or they were obtaining items that were already made of these materials and putting them into these mounds. And these mounds were sites of ceremony and sometimes burial sites and goods were buried with the bodies sometimes. And so that's how we get all of the stuff inside of these mounds. And for those of you listeners from Michigan, uh, there are some famous uh, mounds, the Norton Mounds in Grand Rapids. I remember hearing about it when I was a kid because I'm from about an hour north of Grand Rapids. And um, unfortunately, at this point, the property is closed off to the public because people were trying to get into those mounds, but they are a national historic landmark, I believe. Wow. Um, yep. If you're a listener in Ohio, uh, go see the Hopewell <laughs> Mound site. Um, 
in uh, in Ohio. It is amazing. I went there last summer. It is uh, it, it's it's fascinating to to see and to to, to walk around there and, and just realize that America has layers of culture and civilization that go much further back and much deeper than we sometimes think. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating place to walk around. Uh, I still haven't gotten to the great serpent mound. Um, I was complaining to Sam before we started recording that I still haven't gotten there. And she remembered me complaining a year ago when I wasn't able to get there. So, <laughs> uh, one of these days, just a complainer, <laughs> I, I'm uh, just a guy who can't show up to the great serpent mound when it's open. <laughs> So another concept is that that this sort of touches on and that, that we should we should at least nod at or toward is the concept of hyperdiffusionism. Or hyperdiffusionism is an archaeological theory or, or a pseudo-archaeological one. One aspect of hyperdiffusionism is the argument that there was much more contact between ancient civilizations than mainstream historians or archaeologists acknowledge. There was contact it's claimed by some, for example, between ancient Egypt and the Western Hemisphere, the ancient Phoenicians sailing across the Atlantic and up the Mississippi, or the Welsh coming up and building their forts on the Ohio like we talked about in the Witch's Castle episode. And this contact between different civilizations um, in the, the distant deep past explains why there are commonalities between some of these, these cultures, pyramid-shaped structures. One argument you'll see a lot is there are pyramids in Egypt and pyramid-shaped structures in Mexico. They couldn't have both come up with pyramids separately. Well, yeah, they, they probably could have, actually. <laughs> Another, there are only okay. so many shapes. There, and <laughs> there are only so many, a fill-in-the-blank sort of is, is a common thing. Because another hyperdiffusional argument is that the study of Native American languages shows links to ancient languages and there's connections between them. Um, Barry Fell in his book America BC back in the 70s, I think, said that there were Algonquian words that were Egyptian and Semitic and Celtic and Norse, which is a huge time span and, and geographic area of languages. And Linguists have disputed this convincingly because a lot of times some of the the alleged evidence for these linguistic similarities is, well, this word sounds kind of like this word, and there's only a certain number of sounds the human mouth can produce, right? So there are, there are going to be uh, there are going to be those similarities, um, and sometimes the, these contacts between civilizations are are ones where it's, it's things we're aware of the um, the, the 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 Egyptians met with the Native Americans who were in the Upper Peninsula and they traded copper or something. But other more fringy theories promote the idea that there are lost civilizations, uh, Atlantis and Lemuria or Mu, I think, no, just Mu, Mu, I don't know, uh, come up a lot and that these were the source of, of cultural commonalities and that Egypt is kind of an intermediary. They're, they're not as ancient as the lost civilizations and that they, they carried these Atlantean ideas and, and helped and helped spread them. If you watch cable television or read books that are in archaeology sections of bookstores, you see a lot of these ideas sneaking in there. So it's some of these fringe archaeology ideas are, in some cases, just as well known as more, um, more mainstream ones. Because we certainly can't trust people with degrees who have studied this for a long time. All right. Yeah. We are going to bring these two ideas, I think, kind of together. together. I think yeah. talking about the Book of Mormon, which is where we're going next, really combines the these ancient Native American cultures with this idea of hyperdiffusionism. So the Book of Mormon is a foundational religious text for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and one of the movement's earliest writings. It contained the writings of ancient prophets who lived in the American continent from 600 BC to 421 AD. In addition to its scriptural importance, so, you know, containing these theological ideas and things, it is also, according to some, a record of God's dealings with the early inhabitants of North America. The book was found by Joseph Smith in Manchester, New York, where it was left by the last prophet, um, uh, the last prophet who wrote in the book. It is said by Smith to be written in an unknown text like at this that point unknown and probably not found since i'm thinking <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> known as reformed egyptian 
And it sets the lost tribes of Israel as the ancestors of Native Americans. And so this idea helps reconcile the existence of humans in North America prior to the events of the Bible. So we're specifically speaking about these ancient Hopewell and Adena tribes. Because if you remember, I said that the Hopewell were believed to be in Ohio as early as 100 BC. And so a lot of times when we're talking about Native American tribes, we're talking about them generally around contact, just mm -hmm. before contact. So we're thinking late 14 and 15 and 1600. So this is long, long, <laughs> over a thousand years prior to that. Um, so very ancient Native cultures. Um, and mainstream historical and archaeological experts do not accept the historical assertions found inside of the Book of Mormon. Um, they don't find any kind of historically verifiable facts in these ideas that these ancient Near East cultures had these contacts and were here, this lost, these lost tribes of Israel in the North American continent. So it is their idea. It is not accepted by historians and archaeologists. And as we're going to see, the idea of the lost tribes of Israel showing up in various places where they very likely didn't is not confined to Mormon um, no. history. Uh, but, but this story does have heavily Mormon-involved elements to it. Yeah, that's all I was going to say. I was just yeah. going to say that we we bring this up. We didn't say why, but we bring this up because eventually the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is going to be sending folks to look at these relics because they're the kinds of relics that would help prove <laughs> a lot of these things inside of the Book of Mormon. So, Yes, and we should say sort of in connection to that, one a, a key source for our understanding of this is an article published by uh, Brigham Young University yes. called Mormon Mormonism's Encounter with the Michigan Relics, which is goes into far more detail than we have the mm -hmm. time or understanding to. And, ha and there's other articles that we'll link to um, from uh, from Brigham Young that are uh, that we'll link to in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And and so th this is this is not you know nasty skeptics making fun of Mormons. This is also the Mormon believing archaeologists being self-critical of claims that are being mm -hmm. made and investigating those claims, which makes which makes it, I think, a more fascinating story in in some ways. And yeah, yeah. They wanted to agree. make sure they got it right as well. Yes, absolutely. So how does this all begin? Well, in October of 1890, a man named James O. Scottford excitedly announced to fellow residents of the village of Wyman, Michigan, in Montcalm County, that he had found ancient pottery while digging post holes on his property. The excitement soon spread, and the next spring and summer, residents of Wyman and nearby Edmore dug into dozens of mounds and unearthed many artifacts. So what was being found? Everything from amulets to pottery to tools and pipes. There were also many tablets with hieroglyphics or cuneiform inscriptions. Many of these tablets depicted biblical stories such as battles, the Tower of Babel, and most notably, the Flood. According to that article we talked about from Brigham Young University, a group of locals looking to capitalize on the finds in the area approached archaeologists in the state to verify the artifacts. In 1892, Francis Kelsey, a professor of Latin at U the University of Michigan, along with Morris Jastrow Jr. from UPenn, discredited the findings. They said the inscriptions on the tablets made no linguistic sense. They utilized a very limited set of characters and mixed several ancient scripts, which is something you see in a lot of these cases. Um, it's like you just copy little symbols onto it and it's like, ah, it's ancient language. Like, no, it's just it's just gibberish. Yeah, so this is kind of the first blow in the credibility of these artifacts. And another one came the following year in 1893. Scottford actually submitted a stone casket to be exhibited at the World's Fair in Chicago. And Walter C. Wyman, who was head of the fair's archaeology department, rejected it as a fake. <laughs> um, you'd think he probably knows what's going on. Probably. <laughs> 
Uh, not everyone, however, sought to discredit the artifacts, though, or once they looked at them, thought that they were um, fakes. In 1898, so we're jumping a few years ahead, John Campbell, a professor at the Presbyterian College in Montreal, Canada, defended the pieces. He claimed that the inscriptions that were found on the tablets were very similar to a tablet found on Monaghan Island in 1856, which is off the coast of Maine. Campbell believed both specimens were the work of a group of traveling Japanese Buddhist monks. Which is different. Um, <laughs> That's not even connecting the same <laughs> No, idea. this is this is massively hyper diffused, right? Yes. Um, so now we're going to get into a few newspaper articles that were found. And I will say that the article from the Brigham Young University, which we are relying heavily upon, they refer to a lot of articles in the Detroit News. But Aaron was unable to find any place online that had access to Detroit News articles. And the free press didn't have as many, but we looked at the sources that the Brigham Young University used, and they were using loads of primary sources. So we trust the things that they did because, you know, yes. we vetted these things and looked at what they were doing. But we still wanted to bring in a few newspaper articles from the area to to see what pe- what was being said. In the May 1st, 1903 edition of the Detroit Free Press, we have the headline, Discovered in a Mound. I love that it's in caps. (laughs) I hope I got the caps across in my voice. Discovered an amount. (laughs) Two skeletons (laughs) that fell to pieces when exposed. Interesting relics that are (laughs) well-preserved. The paper reported that the day before, James Scottford, a painter in Owasso, Michigan, had been fishing with his son and had found a mound near the riverbank that was three feet high and 20 feet in diameter with a large elm tree growing out of the top. We learned that Scottford, quote, had experience in mound digging in other localities, and he spotted this mound as one containing hidden relics, and he resolved to return later and open it. And I do want to point out that when you look at pictures of these mounds, especially the Grand Rapids ones, um, they really, at this point, do just look like a hill that's covered in grass and trees and stuff. Yeah. So it's not like some very unique, like, formed sand hill or, you know... It's not like a tiny pyramid. <laughs> right. I was going to say, if you've seen pictures of some of the, the, the mounds in Ohio, they, they are very steep and very clearly sort of, you know, they've been shaped and crafted. Uh, the, the ones in Michigan are not. Like, and it's probably just because yeah. of how they've been treated for so, like, yeah. I think a lot of the ones around here maybe weren't discovered as early or whatever. And so they weren't, or just the difference in like the, the environment, the flora and the fauna (laughs) that are around them as well so okay so back to the article sorry for the little side trip (laughs) um so uh scottford began digging and when he reached the level of the ground he found a skull which quote fell to pieces when it was exposed to the air or touched with the shovel end quote he then found a skeleton as well as a pipe of elegant shape a bowl a tobacco jar and a piece of pottery which has the head of a sphinx and the hind parts of a winged griffin or lion. The items were made with a mold, it appeared, and the decorative work is unlike the work of Indians. Scottford claimed that the items were so well preserved because they were protected by the roots of the elm tree which surrounded them, which makes no sense. No, not at all. <laughs> but I swear that's what the newspaper said. I know. <laughs> Um, everybody thinks boy let's plant a tree right next to our house because those roots are going to protect our they're going to surround everything and just just (laughs) just cradle it in their their loving embrace so a few days later on may 5th we have another newspaper article we get a little more background on james scottford scottford we are told possesses the magic divining rod which points the way to historic mounds interesting although working as a house painter he studied archaeology in england Scottford told the writer that Michigan is particularly rich in ancient historic mounds and that he had also researched mounds in England, Canada, Ohio, Colorado, Virginia, and Illinois. In 1907, two more men joined Scottford in his relic adventure, and the first was Daniel E. Soper, former Michigan Secretary of State and longtime collector of Native American antiquities. And that phrase makes me cringe. I know. Just so you all know. I know. I I. <laughs> <laughs> we, we use the phrase because it is it's sort I know. of 
of the period. But I know. Yeah, antiquities. <laughs> it, it's well, it's just collect. Like he collector. is a collector of Native collector. American antiquities. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That belongs which, in a museum. Which is that exactly exactly. <laughs> Nobody should be collecting these things. So Soper had something of a checkered past. He was forced to resign as Secretary of State in 1891 after being suspected of corrupt conduct and malfeasance in office. Mm. And if you Google Daniel Soper, you will find almost nothing except <laughs> references to the Michigan relics. It took some digging, but I found out his what he did to be forced to resign. And like all the best scams, it is too boring to even comprehend. <laughs> he was basically selling municipalities and courthouses copies of like the Michigan code, like the big giant shelves of books, uh-huh. pocketing the money and not passing it on to this. He's stealing the books and then it's so, the boring. So boring. So boring. Um, <laughs> that but, is something that like a, a lonely bureaucrat thinks. Uh, right. You could, you could get away with this forever, <laughs> but his shady past extended to the world of ancient artifacts after he was, you know, run out of town in Michigan, he moves to Arizona. And while there, he takes some of his collection of Native American artifacts, these are genuine artifacts, and buries them in Arizona. <laughs> I and and I, right, I read this is like, really? Uh, and then he invites local archaeologists to, um, to, to sort of be there while he unearths these treasures. And the archaeologists look at him and say, this isn't from Arizona. What, what, what are you doing? Unsurprisingly. Look at these great big fur that these <laughs> folks in Arizona are wearing. Why, 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 is, there a, why is there a moose on this? <laughs> so unsurprisingly, Soper is, is it's, it's sort of driven out of town again and heads back to Michigan. There he hooks up with Scottford and Soper would become pretty much the public face of Scottford's relic operations, selling artifacts through the mail. He claimed he didn't sell them through the mail. He had a system of various companies that were (laughs) intermediaries to sort of distance himself from it. Um, One operation was advertised as the Happy Hollow Gold Mining Company. With the promise of immense dividends assured, millions in sight, no mining scheme, no long wait, quick action guaranteed. No debts, no danger of loss. The sale of the artifacts was literally a get-rich-quick scheme. I mean, they labeled it, get rich, quick, no risk. <laughs> the happy, hollow gold mining. No mining involved. That, that's outstanding. The other man who came into the relics orbit was James Savage. He was the Roman Catholic dean for the Western Detroit Diocese and pastor of Most Holy Trinity Church in Detroit. And Savage was a longtime, sorry, Sam, collector of indigenous antiquities and became entranced with the Scottford relics, believing there was Christian symbology embedded in some of them. There was a a marking that looked like IHS, which is the um, abbreviation for in, in hoc signo, which is part of the words that Constantine saw before the Battle of Milvian Bridge. So he saw this uh, sort of symbol in there. Um, at the same time, at, as Savage was getting involved, local newspapers were starting to raise the many, many issues that archaeologists had with the finds. So we're going to jump ahead now to 1907. Um, in November, November 15th of that year, the Detroit Free Press ran another article with the headline, Hint at Relic Frauds. So we've jumped ahead to not just the discovery, but to it being a fraud. Archaeologists at war with Daniel E. Soper alleged that supposed prehistoric articles unearthed from Michigan mounds are of modern make. Accused ones deny charges. Wouldn't they? (laughs) Uh, So uh, the article goes on to say that archaeologists believed the relics were fake, but Soper and Scottford claimed that they're real. Soper relies on his knowledge as a collector of Indian relics for over 30 years. So he's pulling out his great knowledge that he tried to pass over on the people <laughs> of Arizona. One of the chief skeptics noted in the article was Charles E. Brown, and he was the curator of the Wisconsin Archaeological Society and had sent Soper several letters alleging that the artifacts, for which some collectors had paid big money, were <laughs> forgeries made with modern tools. 
Scottford said that he had opened 104 mounds in various parts of Michigan searching for specimens and declared that anyone who charges that these relics could be duplicated doesn't know what he's talking about. He goes on to explain that many of them are made of tempered copper and that the U.S. government now has a standing offer of $10,000 for anyone who can find this lost art of tempering copper. So in order to understand these claims about tempered copper a bit better, Aaron decided to research it a bit more and found that, in fact, um, the, the process of tempering copper was something that metallurgists of the late 19th and early 20th centuries were really trying to figure out. And in his research, he came across some notes um, from the 1893 Columbian Exhibition. They said that at Michigan's exhibit at the fair, they had all of these different artifacts like knives and arrowheads and things like that from um, indigenous peoples of the Upper Peninsula on display. And nobody could really figure out how they were made because this copper was heated and shaped and that this was some kind of a lost art that could no longer be duplicated. So that's how Scottford's assertion that these tempered copper things have to be real um, kind of plays into (laughs) this whole scheme. Experts, however, leveled serious charges at promoters, Soper and Scottford, um, calling the relics a hoax, pointing out that the relics were only ever discovered while Scottford or Soper or their trusted partners were there, and that the actual artifacts didn't exhibit characteristics of things that had been underground for thousands of years. So these things don't show the proper aging (laughs) to actually be this old. And this is right. something that we see brought up um, with several of these people who are questioning the authenticity of these pieces. Uh, accusations and defenses went on for several years, during which time the group dug open hundreds of mounds. And so we've seen Father Savage get involved, seeing Christian symbolism in these uh, in some of the tablets. Religious motivations have always been one of the driving forces behind pseudo-archaeological claims, as we talked about at the top of the episode. And after the break, we'll see how that was particularly true of the Michigan relics. Next time, we'll have an episode. Yes. And I... <laughs> I think I think we have we have planned something creepy and supernatural. Yeah, we want to yeah. go back that route yeah, after this so. very history heavy yes. episode. But this yes. is still this is legends, this is lore. So yep. And next time there'll be legends and lore with with maybe you know some super creepy stuff. Absolutely, some super. I'm hoping stuff. for ghosts. Yeah, I think ghosts. Um, yes. Next time, some kind of ghosts. <laughs> Because we get to make these decisions. So it is written, so let it be done. (laughs) You can find Great Lakes Lore on social media, on on Twitter and and Facebook at Great Lakes Lore. Uh, You can email us at greatlakeslorepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram as uh, Great Lakes Lore. You can check out the website, greatlakeslore.com, noticing a pattern. Uh, The phrase (laughs) Great Lakes Lore appears very often. And, uh, you know, connect with us, comment on episodes, ask questions, uh, interact with us. It's uh, it's fun. Yeah. And you can also subscribe to our Patreon if you want more of Aaron and I. <laughs> you can find us at patreon.com slash Chizomedia. Um, it is a Patreon account for both Great Lakes Lore and Aaron's other podcast, The Saucer Life. And there are patrons, depending on what tier you should choose to support us at. You get uh, early access to episodes. We do a post recording wrap-up of every episode so that video or just the audio whichever you prefer goes up there uh we have blog posts we do a bonus episode for each show every month so there's lots of bonus material and content there for you to consume um and we have two different tiers so check it out and see if there is something that fits for you Yes. And before we get back to it, I just want to tell you, I, I tried to have a ghost adventure, not on the same level as, uh, as your haunted reformatory. But when uh, we were vacationing down in Ohio, there was a haunted train tunnel on a, a rail trail, the Moonville, uh, which is Moonville. It's just such a cool sort of name for a place. And um, it was supposedly haunted. And the, the biggest, most terrifying adventure was was finding it because it's just like this long trail. But where is the actual tunnel? So um, we took the family minivan on a little two-track track that no minivan should have been on until it was blocked by a tree. 
that had fallen, and we almost lost the minivan down the side of a ravine trying to turn around to go the other way. We eventually (laughs) found the tunnel, um, and it was very cool. Uh, It was very cool to see, Um, very echoey. I had made plans to go back at night to see if I could detect anything, but realized driving on some of those roads at night in a minivan was probably beyond my skills. Who was it supposed to be haunted by? I was never clear on that, but, oh. uh, oh, 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 I believe if, unless I'm mixing it up with another railway tunnel, there are a number of people who are known and documented to have died or fallen off of the trestle above like, uh. the railway down to, uh, down to the road. I think oh, the okay. most recent was in the 1970s. Oh, okay. So, um, so yeah, it's, um, there, there, there might be a num- any number of, of ghosts of people who have died. Sure. And actually it, it looks very tempting to climb up the sort of rocky rubble from the ground up to where the, the, the top of the trestle, there's actually a sign. The official sign says, don't be stupid Good. Or, or something like that. It's very, it's very blunt. I, I asked my wife if I could try climbing up there and she, she said, don't be stupid. So <laughs> it's like um, the people, the people that we talked about in our Mackinac Island episode who still try to climb Sugarloaf, even though the signs say you will literally ruin this great geological formation if you try to climb on it well there's people going up so and you have anything interesting i'm reading a cool book right now it is called my best friend's exorcism and i bought it solely because well i I picked it up because of the cover obviously that's what attracts you to pick up a book um but the cover looks like a 1980s um vhs case it's super cool (laughs) like they even have like the little things that look like a sticker sticker that like the video rental store would put on there like staff pick and be kind please rewind (laughs) and things like that um and so i i'm kind of a slow reader i just like to take things in and savor the words i guess i don't know um i'm also distractible with from my animals and things so but i am flying through it um and so i'm about i'm over i think over two-thirds of the way done um and i'm really enjoying it uh the the it got me because the description said something like this book is what would happen if tina tina fey wrote the exorcist and not william peter blatty (laughs) so oh i was like yes i will buy this book then (laughs) yeah that's uh, you didn't tell me that's the description now i I forgot yeah because Um, that that sounds like something i would want to so it's very much like high school girl life so it's like mean girls meets the exorcist and like not that i was a teen in the 80s but i'm it's very relatable um still uh clicks and things but on top of it their friend might be possessed so you know um it takes place in charleston south carolina so there's a lot of like um class and privilege issues going on as well at this private school and one girl's just there on scholarship it's a whole thing um and it's just really enjoyable i'm really glad i bought it I know you, you sent me a picture and I was like, well, you have to buy that book just 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 for the cover. I mean, I did it's... look up a couple of Goodreads reviews just because I didn't I've been taken in before and I didn't uh, want to be yeah. taken in again. So they were they were the, the reviews are decent. So I was like, all right, I'll give this a shot. All right. Should we get back to the show? <laughs> Probably the, uh, right. the, the the Sam and Aaron uh, travel and media review hour uh, has come to a close <laughs> and we will get back to the relics. So Father Savage wasn't the only religious figure who had an interest in the Michigan relics. Rudolf Etzenhauser was a Mormon elder who worked with Soper, Scottford, and Savage in discovering and promoting the relics. He believed them to be verification of the historical accuracy of Mormon scripture. And in 1910, he published a photo collection of the relics, sort of a a brochure, and mailed copies to museums, scientific societies, and archaeologists around the country. So Etzenhauser's work was, was to promote this to other scholars and we're getting to the period where the the most intense scrutiny on the relics is going to be and a lot of it is due to Etzenhauser saying hey everybody look at this mm-hmm. and people saying i think we will look at this and <laughs> looking at it so Etzenhauser believed that the relics confirmed the historical narrative of the book of mormon what did father savage believe being roman catholic and not mormon well according to an article in the detroit free press in february february 12 1911 One of the most significant relics was a pair of tablets that portrayed the creation of man, the fall of man, the deluge, which is a word we really need to bring back for flood, uh, Babel, the dispersion, and the attempted sacrifice of Isaac. And Savage explains 
that, in his opinion, the mounds in the Lower Peninsula was built by, in his words, the people who worked the copper mines of Lake Superior. And the mounds were a place to bury their dead. These copper miners, Savage explained, quote, were descendants of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. So from a non-Mormon perspective, we've got the 10 lost tribes of Israel showing up in North America. These descendants of the 10 lost tribes of Israel were eventually destroyed, Savage said, by the Indians. And this, he says, refers to a tradition current among the Attawandaran Indians that their fathers latterly exterminated a great white people. And this is an idea that goes back a ways in American history, that, that there was a, a lost race of white people who had been there before the Native Americans and that the Native Americans had wiped out. And uh, Andrew Jackson, in one of his State of the Union addresses, brings this up as one of the justifications for Indian removal during the 1830s, is that, well, the Indians weren't even the original inhabitants. They slew the original white inhabitants who were here first. So this idea has a, a long history of being used as a justification for um, conquest of the Native Americans. Savage also describes some of the other relics that were found, including one found south of Grayling, Michigan, which depicted a battle between, quote, these prehistoric people and the Indian. And he called these war tablets. He said there were seven of them in total. And Savage drew some conclusions about this whole conflict from these tablets. He said, judging from the number of war tablets, the labor it must have taken to make them, the accuracy displayed in description, and the distance apart were found, one would naturally conclude that these wars were many, protracted, and general. He's making an awful lot of assumptions about the prehistory of North America based on seven tablets found in Michigan. But he was convinced that, that the artifacts sort of told this, this true story. So by this point, we have, we have two figures who are representatives of different religious traditions with different sort of historical visions of, of what had happened uh, in the past, both believing that the Michigan relics confirmed their claims. We also have connections to, like I said, longstanding historical assumptions about this pre-Native American people. So now we're going to introduce somebody new to the story, and his name is James Talmadge. And he begins um, to, to conduct some investigations. And it should be noted that there were a number of scholars and antiquarians who were interested in the relics, but we're just going to focus on Talmadge in part because the article from Brigham Young University <laughs> largely focuses on Talmadge. And he's going to be an important figure throughout these investigations, not just like somebody floating in, having an opinion, <laughs> and floating back out. So Mormon interest in the relics extended beyond Etzenhauser. In 1909, James Talmadge was the director of the Deseret Museum in Salt Lake City, Utah. Talmadge was conducting a tour of museums in the eastern United States because the Deseret Museum um, had been closed. They were doing some updates and things like that, and he wanted to see what other museums were doing and um, really look at how you know the Deseret Museum could be better with its opening and what exhibits it could have and that kind of thing. So during this tour, he learned about the Michigan relics while talking with the state archaeologist of Ohio, William Mills, who believed the relics to be authentic. Talmadge began talking to Soper and Savage about the artifacts. Talmadge was interested in the parallels between events depicted on some of the tablets and historical events in the Book of Mormon. This was an area of longstanding interest for him. Um, in 1899, he wrote a book entitled The Book of Mormon, An Account of Its Origin with Evidences of Its Genuineness and Authenticity. And of course, you can imagine that any... Um, any member of the LDS church who had an interest in history would be interested right. in trying to find the artifacts that would prove everything true. Right. So absolutely, <laughs> it absolutely. all, it, it all makes sense. <laughs> um, so conferring with LDS leadership, Talmadge began a thorough investigation of the relics heading to the Detroit area and working with Soper and Scottford on their excavations. He was present for a number of finds, including another tablet depicting warfare between Native Americans and what Talmadge described as a force of, quote, civilized people. <laughs> <sighs> Talmadge... Yeah. 
<laughs> Talmadge consulted with a number of experts about the relics because at this point he's interested in putting together if they are real an exhibit. This would be a great first exhibit yes. for the reopening of yes. his museum, but he wants to make sure that these things are legit. And if not, he still has a plan for them yeah. as well. <laughs> <laughs> I like this guy a lot. Yes, me too. He's, I, he's a good museum professional. Yes, I enjoy yes, it. You can spin you can spin that exhibit however you want. So he's consulting with a number of experts, several of whom, such as the chief of the Bureau of American Ethnology in Washington, told him they were not genuine. The Washington ethnology expert said, quote, the objects are plainly non-Indian and are therefore not genuine archaeological specimens from the region. Talmadge believed they were dismissing the relics out of hand because they did not fit the established history, though. So you can see how there could be a little contention there. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, it's clear that Talmadge was excited by the possibility of the Book of Mormon being confirmed by archaeological finds, which perhaps clouded his view. But he still he still kept researching, though. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the important thing is, is yes. he's trying to get to the bottom of this. He's he's his 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 complaint was that they were dismissing these relics not because of evidence they were frauds, but because well, it couldn't be this right. couldn't be real. So it's clearly fake since we know these things don't exist, which is sort of a question begging sort of you know argument. So. Talmadge grabs a couple of assistants and heads back to Michigan to dig up some more mounds. This time, however, he disguises himself and does the work without Soper or Scottford present. After opening up almost two dozen mounds, they found nothing. It's almost like people only find these <laughs> relics when Soper or Scottford or, or Scottford's, I think, son-in-law were there. Um, oh, kind of like somebody else said earlier. <laughs> yeah, it's Almost like, yeah, some of these previous skeptics might have been right. So Talmud reports back to Utah, and he's asked by the church leadership to continue his investigation, uh, which at this point involved a much more thorough examination of some of the relics than he was able to accomplish in the field in Michigan. So he's, he's back home. He's got all his facilities and tools mm -hmm. and microscopes and all kinds of stuff. His investigation results in findings that were not favorable to Soper and Scottford. In response to Talmadge's claims that some of the relics were fraudulent, Soper asked for them back. Talmadge wrote back that if these relics are found to be genuine, we shall exhibit them as such. And if they prove to be spurious, we shall be equally desirous of exhibiting them as examples of forgery and fraud. Soper lost it, wrote back. He claimed that he was going to have Talmadge arrested, that he was going to sue Talmadge. Uh, but I, I love that, you know, hey, if they're, if they're real, we got an exhibit. If they're fake, we've got a different kind of exhibit. It, still still a smashing exhibit for a museum reopening. I mean, come it's on. It's perfect. <laughs> it's perfect. He's, he's got a bit of the, the, uh, the showman about him, Talmadge does, I think. So Talmadge goes back to Michigan, and, and this is in 19, uh, 1910, 1911. These are long trips from Utah to Michigan. Train. So I, I'm just imagining the time he spent on the on the rails. He digs up some more mounds and is becoming more convinced that the relics were fraudulent. In early 1911, he reported to LDS leaders that the matter of the Michigan relics is still one of doubt and perplexity. In my mind, the evidence of forgery is very strong, but the absolute proof of forgery, the identification of the forger, and the location of the factory are yet incomplete. Basically, they're fake but we don't know who did them or where. Then, in June 1911, Talmadge got a break in the case. He contacted Scottford's stepdaughter, Etta Riley. After communicating with her, he wrote the following in his journal. She has solemnly declared to me that she positively knows her stepfather, James Scottford, has made, buried, and dug up many of the articles reported to be genuine archaeological relics. She gave circumstantial details and agreed to sign a written statement with the proviso that such statement shall not be made public without her consent during the lifetime of her mother. Which is, that's that's very considerate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Who, who knows what kind of threats might have been carried out, you know, if Scottford knew that the stepdaughter knew. Yeah, you know. yeah. 
Riley delivered on her statement, telling Talmadge that Scottford manufactured the relics at his home. But as Talmadge was building his case of for, for forgery, other scholars pushed ahead with promoting the relics, particularly the tablets showing biblical or historical scenes, as not only genuine but revolutionary. J.O. Kinnaman declared that not only the history of the American continent will be revolutionized and rewritten, but the entire ancient history of the world will have to be revised. And as a result, our knowledge of civilization and of the Caucasian race in general will extend thousands of years back to the wildest dream of the most enthusiastic archaeologists now working in Oriental fields. After a University of Chicago scholar denounced the tablets as fake, Kinnaman admitted that he'd been fooled. So he puts out this really grand statement and then he's like, oh, God, it's like, oh, saving. gosh, oh, gosh, you're right. <laughs> These aren't real. Right. Um, but but, but one, one thing that, that always struck me about that is the, the Caucasian race in general. So this is you know, revolutionary in the history of the white people. But aren't these the descendants of the <laughs> 10 tribes of Israel yeah. who were pretty resolutely not white? In September 1911, Talmadge reached a conclusion in his investigation. The most damning of his many arguments included the fact that nearly all of the discoveries were made by Scottford or in the presence of Scottford. The bodies were buried just a foot or two below the surface of the ground. Most of the relics were so fresh as to be practically new. And when examined under a microscope showed fresh tool marks, corrosion on the copper artifacts was caused by chemicals rather than the slow process of time, it was concluded. Um, further, the copper itself was modern commercial copper. <laughs> and to particular favorites, the articles exhibit haphazard, offhand, slovenly sketching, unlike the careful work of ancient artists. And the characters are a jumble thrown together without regard to origin, which we're getting back to that very very same critique that Kelsey, the yep. the linguist or Latin, the Latin expert from um, the University of Michigan said way back in the 1890s, we are right. back to the same argument. <laughs> Later. Th yes. it's, st it's still not a real language, folks. Yep. It's just a bunch of uh, just a bunch of, of letters. But maybe it's reformed Egyptian. Yeah. Reformed Egyptian without question. So. In the show notes, I mentioned that there's another article. Um, there's an article, sort of a companion to the the article we used for a lot of our information on, on just sort of the, the sequence of events. And it is about the actual analysis of the tool marks on the relics. And it's way too technical to try to get into here. But we'll include a link to that in the show notes because it's, it's fascinating stuff. Scottford, Soper, and Father Savage would all vehemently defend the authenticity of the relics, but as word spread of Talmadge's findings, more people came forward with information, including Mary Robeson, who is the neighbor of one of Scottford's sons. She claims the Scottford boys had come to her and told her that they helped their dad make and bury the artifacts. The sons responded that they did tell her this, but they told her that as a joke. Oh yeah, we did tell her we made the whole thing up, but we were kidding? Uh, that sounds unconvincing. Scottford and his sons kept digging, while Soper and Savage continued to market the finds as genuine. Skepticism increased as the years went on, but the two men pushed for the relics until their death in the 1920s. Curiously, there were no more discoveries following the deaths of Soper and Savage and Scottford. Soper's collection was left to his son, while Father Savage left his to the University of Notre Dame. In the 1960s, there was an effort by Milton Hunter, president of the New World Archaeological Foundation, part of Brigham Young University, to examine or re-examine the Scottford relics. He acquired the Soper collection from Soper's son, and he hoped he would be able to prove the authenticity of the relics and especially translate the unknown language. He sent samples of this to linguists around the world, none of whom were able to come up with translations. And although he had some support from other Mormon archaeologists, the relics are still considered frauds among professional archaeologists, and, and even many pseudo-archaeologists say, no, these Michigan things, that's those are fake. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that isn't fake, but the Michigan stuff's a fake. Some belief does persist, but not on the same scale as, as some other archaeological frauds we're going to see over the years. So um, in wrapping up, we've reached the end of the tale. And so we're, we're going to have some of our closing thoughts. And I think the, the big thing, the, the big question that I had, and we have several points under here, is why the story is worth telling. Why did we just spend an hour of your life 
<laughs> telling you about these artifacts that were found, found in quotes, in Michigan that are not real. So one issue is that the collecting and selling of historical artifacts, in, in, including human remains, has been a problem throughout history. This is this is not something, you know, just you know, unique to the Michigan relics. This is a a problem, and it's a problem not just because there are fake things being sold, but I think a worse problem, honestly, is that real things yeah. are being are being bought and sold. Yeah, I mean, especially if you think about like all of the the sacking of the pyramids that went on, and I mean, British folks with lots of money would have like mummy unwrapping parties in their house. Yeah. <laughs> I mean that they would grind bits of mummy into like their face creams and tonics and crap. Like that's not okay. <laughs> no, that's that's and weird. you would never do that to another english person so. no you wouldn't and and that's that's something that that kept sort of being in my mind is like you wouldn't do this to other graves if you knew there were graves you, you wouldn't yeah. just start indiscriminately like digging up graves wondering what you might find yeah and this fits in with our well let's just move the nagpra conversation up to now because i yeah. think it fits yeah. with this um because this is especially a problem um because in 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 north america um, where, you know, well, and across the globe, but for us specifically here and for this conversation, um, people continually would collect, desecrate, and trade Native American artifacts. And that continued long, long into the 20th century. This is not a turn of the century problem, but these kinds of things have been happening until just, just, a couple decades ago. And so that's something that I thought it would be important to talk about and how this thing that was happening wouldn't be able to happen today because in 1990, although it took until 1990 <laughs> to pass um, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act known as NAGPRA. And museums have specific like job posts sometimes to have a NAGPRA specialist. And so this act is viewed as a human rights act because it was enacted to protect the cultural and biological remains of Native American peoples. White, white bodies, whether it be governments, museums, these official sort of groups, no longer had authority over past and future archaeological findings related to indigenous peoples. So tribes needed to be consulted to determine if items in collections, so things that were already there could remain there or if they wanted them back. So whether it's a skeleton or a pot or an arrowhead or whatever, it then became, and there was a time limit, and I think we're getting close to that time limit. I forgot to look it up. But there were so many years that these people, museum professionals were supposed to have to contact the tribes and figure out if these items could stay in the collection, had to be repatriated or whatever. Um, additionally, tribes had to be consulted when new artifacts were discovered. So if archaeologists are out digging and they're like, oh, hey, look, Native American remains or, you know, artifacts or whatever, they can't just dig them up for the museum, which is still better than going into the hands of a private individual. Um, they need to contact the folks who, you know, the, the, the tribe that those would be affiliated with and work with them to determine how to handle it, whether they leave it alone, what exactly they do with this archaeological site. Yeah. And, and that's something, like you said, didn't exist, you know, codified until until 1990. Yeah. And even before it was, was law, I mean, there's a lot of, I assume, debate within the the museum and, and archaeological world about what should be done and a, a sense that something more proper should be done. And that sentiment that that you can't just plunder things, that goes back almost back to the time period that this story uh, story took place. In. Yeah, I mean, it was really hit or miss. I was actually listening to another podcast recent, recently called National Parks After Dark, and they had this story <laughs> about, about mounds. And I forget where it was, somewhere in the in the smack in the middle of the country, Iowa or something like that. Yeah. There were all of these mounds. And um, at some point it was a national park. And the it turned out that the um, the head ranger, if that's what you'd call him, something like that. that. That sounds like a title. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, like there, there's a lot to the story. And I don't remember all the details, but they ended up finding garbage bags full of remains at his house. Oh, 
And he had a lot of like, oh, we didn't want to have to like give these back to the people like they don't know how to care for them. Um, And this was somebody who had been there for a long time and, you know, either felt some kind of sense of ownership over them. He couldn't have felt like they were going to survive better in the conditions he put them in because they were like crumbling away pieces of bone by that point because they'd been in a garage and garbage bags. Um, So it's not like he even had the thought of like, ah, they'll be better in the museum. I don't know. I mean, it was a lot of people had opinions and um, bad ones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so one of the things I found interesting is you you mentioned uh, to me um, or in our notes about the American Alliance of Museums. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're in this sort of transition period from gentlemen, antiquarian collectors who are sort of it's sort of a, a very bougie upper middle class, upper class pastime to, you know, hire some men to dig that mound out and see if there's anything for my collection mm-hmm. sort of thing. And these people had had knowledge and were trying to learn things, but it wasn't an organized academic pursuit. And we're seeing the emergence of, of, of a professionalization of archaeology. And and the museum professionals, too. And I don't think we touched on this um, when we were talking about Talmadge visiting all these other museums. Um, Some of the things that uh, while he was out east, he attended the AAM annual meeting, the American Alliance of Museums. They had just begun in 1906. And so, you know, here's a group of professionals and museum professionals are going to range from, you know, probably librarians Public historians, I mean, at this point, different people, archaeologists, though, would definitely be in the mix there. And that's where he met some of these people who he talked about with these findings. Um, But these are folks who are getting together trying to determine what these best practices for museums are. So how do we care for things? Um, You know, how do we figure out where they came from? You know, what what is the provenance of the item? So they are at this point in 1906 trying to set these standards and AAM still today is like the gold standard for how museums operate. I mean, it, it, and it's it's 1906, right? Is mm-hmm. So um, was when it begins. So that's right yeah. in the middle of all this. Mm-hmm. And some uh, some things I read sort of pointed to Talmadge's investigation of these relics as a really important point in the professionalization of archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, because he, he went in, he hypothesized, he sought evidence. His dismissal of the relics was based on, under a microscope, I see tool marks. Mm-hmm. Not, well, it couldn't be because this isn't how things were. And one thing about archaeology, the professionalization of archaeology is in the 19th century, it's coming along at the same time that you've got these revolutions in evolutionary biology and a deeper understanding of geology in the age of the earth. So a lot of professional archaeologists automatically reacted very strongly against anything that was like, we're proving part of fill in your holy book here. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, well, this is you know undermining the science of of what we're doing. So mm-hmm. there's there's a, a little bit of dogmatism on each side. And Talmadge is like, well, no, I've got pictures of things that prove it's fake. I did chemical tests to show this mm-hmm. copper is modern. So it, it's it's a much more um much more science-based uh debunking of uh the bunk. <laughs> I just I just like his I just like his attitude. He's he's a very open-minded but thorough investigator and he cared about his museum (laughs) you know the goal of a museum is to get people in the door so you got to think what do the people want (laughs) they either want something revolutionary or they want a scandal (laughs) that's all i want from a museum revolution or scandal i don't care which maybe a little of both (laughs) ross is a revolutionary scandal or a scandal scandalous scandalous revolution yeah uh, you mentioned back at the beginning of our of our wrap up here about um, of, of collectors, you know, in in Britain getting you know bits of mummy mm-hmm. and things like that. And I, I think on, on a wider scale, there's there's sort of the the issue of of imperialism and colonialism here mm-hmm. as as well, because the, the British Museum having all of these things from cultures from all over the world, the mm-hmm. Vatican having a vast array. Mm-hmm. Of, uh, of of ancient things and it's it's like like you said it's it's different in north america it's a sort of a dif- different sort of thing with native american relics but there's still this this sense of um 
well, we are taking this land and anything on this land is ours, regardless of the culture and people who lived here before. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a curiosity. Like, I mean, this all stems from this idea of the cabinet of curiosities almost, right? And so, um, and that's something I've studied a bit about because um, Thomas Jefferson um, ties into this too, because he definitely, like he was assembling his own cabinet of curiosities, which is like prior to museums and whatever rich people collected cool stuff and then they wanted to show off their cool stuff so yeah. um yeah. so i mean jefferson had native american pieces lewis and clark brought home stuff for him he had the skeleton of a mastodon that was found you know like he had all of these things so if you go to monticello that front room that has all of the stuff <laughs> all over all the walls you know that's that's part of that collection and so then slowly as ideas change, you start finding these things, um, you know, being taken to museums where they can be cared for properly and in perpetuity um, and and things like that. And now I've gotten away from the imperialism question. But yes, the cabinet of curiosity, you know, you're filling your collection with odd stuff. And so anything that isn't your culture is an odd stuff. (laughs) Um, It's it's an it's an other thing. Yeah, so, it's um, it's the the exotic cool. other. Yes. It's, yep. it's um it's it's Orientalism, uh, yeah. you know the in, in the Edward Said sense. Yep. You know, thinking back to my historiography class. I know. Yes, um, <laughs> that's what I read Said. <laughs> Anything else? No, I don't. I think I think that gets it all. I, I think so too. All right. Well, thank you for listening. The Michigan Relics was written and produced by Samantha Engel and Aaron Gullius. Our music is by Raphael Crux. Great Lakes Lore is a Chizo Media production. Chizo Media, our heart is with the people. Until next time, don't get lost in the lore.